Once again, hello and welcome everyone to this very special edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and for the next hour, we're going to be talking with author Debbie Irving, and I'll be introducing her in just one moment. Again, um, apologies for the brief delay, uh, slight technical difficulties getting Debbie into the room, and also myself today. Um, so if you don't know about Restorative Justice on the Rise, it was founded eight years ago in 2011, and it strives to offer free public dialogues based in Creative Commons and open source values to help educate and spread the word and connect people who are practitioners on the ground in restorative practices and justice and in systems transformation in related fields such as peace building, um, nonviolent communication, social healing, social emotional learning, and of course um, the marrow of today's topic um, is around race and having open conversations about race. So um, today's conversation is an interview, but it's also uh, a welcome invitation, as you probably noted on your invite to today's session with Debbie, to ask questions, um, to get involved in the dialogue, and we'll be saving time at the end of our conversation today at about the 15 um, minute, 40, uh, that is uh, 15 minutes before the hour mark to open up for questions and to have some dialogue with you. Um, you can also go to your webcast page to submit a question if you'd prefer us to read it for you by, by just looking at the, the Q&A tab. Um, you'll find that pretty easily, I believe, on your webcast page. If you have any questions during this live broadcast, certainly you can email them using the email that was in your invitation. We warmly encourage you also to take advantage of all of the uh, archives, dialogues that we've had um, that are on iTunes. They're free. Um, they're transferable between many different devices. And um, they're there to serve uh, the conversation around how people are changing their minds and changing systems and how we are working towards um, better understanding and restoring relationships and peace in this world. No small task. So without further ado, I'd love to just say a few words about our very special guest. It's a great honor to have her here today with us. Um, I'm, I'm a huge admirer of her, and I have to admit, I only found out about Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, which is her best-selling book, has raving reviews on Amazon, and has been re reviewed by people such as Van Jones, Peggy McIntosh, Bishop Jean Robinson, and others. And in Waking Up White, she tells her often cringe-worthy story with such openness that readers will turn every page rooting for her, and ultimately for all of us. And for 25 years, Debbie sensed inexplicable racial tensions in her personal and professional relationships. As a colleague and neighbor, she worried about offending people she dearly wanted to befriend. As an arts administrator, she didn't understand why her diversity efforts lacked traction. As a teacher, she found her best efforts to reach out to students and families of color left her wondering what she was missing. 
Then, in 2009, one aha moment launched an adventure of discovery and insight that drastically shifted her worldview and upended her life plan. She is now a racial justice educator and writer, works with other white people to transform confusion into curiosity and anxiety into action. She resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, this book, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, is the centerpiece for our conversation today with our very special guest, Debbie Irving. And Debbie, um, thank you so much for your time. I'm opening up your mic so that you can um, be heard. Thank you for being with us here um, for this hour. Hi. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And um, it, it would be interesting to know, before we even get started, I'd love to take a litmus of the folks that are here with us today. If you wouldn't mind raising your hand by pressing star two, if you have read Waking Up White or if you are aware of it. Um, how many of you have read it or are aware of the book? Star two. Thank you. I'll wait for a moment to see the results here. I'm chuckling at the introduction because it's sort of a marketing thing to say one aha moment when in fact it was a it was a course, so it was many ahas over the mm. about six month period. Mhm. Mm it's wonderful um, to have this opportunity to hear more about that. And it looks, Debbie, like um, people, most people have not heard of the book. Or have read oh, that's fantastic. Um, we have four hands up right now, and that's it. So um, wow. we have a, a big group of people from all over the country. We also have um, some Canadians with us and someone dialing in from France. So a warm welcome to everyone. Um, so let's let's dive in, Debbie. I um, let, and we'll come back to what you were just mentioning about the aha moment um, being a series of them. I'm sure. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share your experience um, as a white child of privilege and the experiences or experience that informed your worldview at that point and to share a bit about your life leading up to your waking up. Right. So waking up didn't really begin until I was 48 years old. So the first 18 years of my life, um, I lived in the same house in a very wealthy suburb just north of Boston. And I'm from a big um, uh, New England family. And in these families, you know, people marry second cousins and college roommates. And it's a, it's a really insulated world. And that's the world I grew up in, country clubs and ski houses and a really class-privileged life. And uh, I always had the belief, because it was given to me, that everything we achieved was because of our hard work and our quote-unquote good genes. That term was actually used. And um, and there was a really uh, deep family um, ethos that we were good people and that we, to whom much is given, much is expected. So my family was really involved in charity and, you know, being honest and being responsible and always stepping up and serving on committees. All of these were part of the fabric of me and part of my family. Um, so the other thing I would say about my childhood that was important is that I was, I don't think anyone ever sat me down and told me that the playing field was level. 
But I absolutely got that idea that the whole point of the United States was that anybody could come here and all you had to do was work hard and achieve that American dream. Um, you know, sweet land of liberty, life, liberty, justice for all, one nation indivisible. And I was surrounded by people in Winchester who had, that's the name of the suburb, that had family stories that were, you know, my great-grandparents came here from Italy, Poland, uh, Germany. They didn't speak a word of English. And they were treated like dirt. And look at us now. They had two cents in their pocket. Look at us now. And so this idea of the American dream and all you had to do was work hard was fixed in my belief system. And if that's the formula, then, boy, my family must have really worked hard for everything we had and must have been extra smart. So as a little girl, I internalized those beliefs, and then that's the way I explain the world. Until, and then I've also, I call my childhood a white bubble childhood. Then I had a white bubble college experience at Kenyon College. Um, there were a few people of color. It was overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly elite. And then I graduated, and I came back to Boston. And I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then apartment, and I had a job working in the arts. And one of my jobs was to raise money and create programs for under, if you could see my fingers, I'm doing air quotes, underprivileged, under-resourced um, children in the quote-unquote inner city. And so for the first time in my life, I came face-to-face -face with people and neighborhoods that did not look like anything I'd ever seen. And how did I explain it? There were black and brown people uh, living in neighborhoods with the public schools had windows broken. They had 40 kids in the classroom. Their textbooks were ancient. And the only thing I had to explain it was, well, you know, these people have had a rough go of it. I mean, maybe they're not as smart as my people. I, first of all, the fact that I saw them as other is a major indicator of the way I had been socialized. Um, and all the stereotypes I've been taught throughout my life, not even by saying negative things about black and brown people, but by hearing so many wonderful things about my people, um, that's how I started to explain what I was seeing. And I thought that I was going, I'm a good person, so I was going to jump in and help and check. So I raised a ton of money um, and created after-school programs. So I was surprised people weren't as excited as I thought they should be, and I didn't feel as appreciated as I thought I should be. And so there's that elephant in the room feeling. I knew there was something off, and I could not for the life of me name it. And so I got on diversity committees. I did that for 25 years. In retrospect, doing nothing but creating more harm than good simply by not knowing what I was dealing with. So I had no understanding of whiteness, and I had no understanding of racism as systemic. I didn't know my history. And um, I didn't know how my history had shaped me. And so when I use the term waking up white, what I mean is waking up to the degree to which uh, we as white people in the United States are duped um, by having only a whitewashed history and a whitewashed version of events uh, filling our textbooks and our media and our movies, our TV shows, our books. Are, are in our spaces, the white spaces that we often hang out in. So that's, uh, does that bring, does that answer your question? I love the picture that you paint in the book as well. And yes, that absolutely gives us a great context um, and springboard for our conversation. And I couldn't recommend this book more, really. Um, I 
I mean, it, it really pulls you in from the first moment um, and the quote that you share from James Baldwin, which uh, we'll bring up a little bit later. Um, you, in the 60 minutes or less now that we have, there's so much we could cover. And um, again, for those of you just joining us, please feel free to get involved in the dialogue or think of questions you might like to ask live. Um, we'll be saving time towards the end of our session together today for your live questions. You can also submit them on the webcast. Um, also wanted to just point out that Debbie's um, website for the book as well as more information about her work and some fantastic resources for people to utilize um, are at DebbieIrving.com. That's just simply all one word, DebbieIrving.com. Um, so with a Y. I think it, thank you, yes, with a Y, D-E-B-B-Y. Um, so Debbie, I think it would be interesting just to hear from you um, in a nutshell, what does waking up white mean to you? What does that mean to you in a nutshell? It means, it means really waking up to uh, the real history in the United States and how that has shaped my world view. So by by having a very distorted, myth-filled version of U.S. history presented to me, it allowed me to believe that that playing field was level and that everything I got was um, was earned, and that people who don't seem to be uh, making it are uh, this is their own damn fault. You know, this is that idea of meritocracy. Mm -hmm. So waking up means really being able to understand how power and privilege operate in this country to maintain um, some really ugly truths about what, what has gone down and actually about the original design of the country, which was really never to be a level playing field. Uh, I love how you're really laying out for us these high concepts upon which things have been um, you know, fed to us, and and even in our our constitution, um, what is your? I, I know this isn't a question that I planned on asking you, but I w I hope you don't mind um, sharing your view of where we're at right now in the high concepts we think we are compared to what's really going on. Would you be willing okay. to share a quick this, reflection? Oh, this is my favorite. And actually, I think you did sort of ask this through a number of questions. So I think, I okay. think an interesting place to start is what um, most uh, sort of good, liberal, progressive, uh, when I say good, I mean people who believe themselves to be good people and are progressive and liberal and want that fair and just world, where that group is, and that defines me until the age of 48, um, that group, I think, often gets stuck on the idea of diversity. I'm working in a diverse school. I'm, um, I grew up amidst diversity. Uh, I want to be on a diversity committee. Often what the word, the diverse, the word diversity is incredibly limiting. It just means variety. And it leaves out all of the history and all of the power uh, dynamics. So if we, if we're talking about, um, diversity as populating a space differently. So if a college says, yeah, we've become very diverse, that means they populated a formerly white space with more black and brown people. That's usually what that means. But if diversity were about simply populating a space differently, we could say that plantations were diverse. So it is mm. never about who populates the space. It's about who controls the space. Mm. 
and to this day, who controls our spaces, meaning our institutions and our country, is disproportionately elite white men who are also Anglo or passing as Anglo, heterosexual or passing as heterosexual, able or passing as able, Protestant, passing as Protestant or Christian or something like that. And so that's that. See the difference there between diversity and really thinking about who controls the space. And the other language I hear that that indicates to me that people are stuck at a low level of understanding, which is exactly where I was stuck for all those years, is the idea that what we're talking about is race relations. So the idea that we have to improve race relations suggests that if people of color and white people would hang out more together, we'd solve this thing. One way I've been thinking about that recently is think about uh, women's rights. If, if if gender relations were going to solve it, we'd be, we would have been done a long time ago because men and women have always been relating with one another. It's all about the power dynamics, and and that is the piece that I completely missed. Um, anything you want to ask? When you want no, to that, I think away? that's powerful. That that is yeah. powerful. What you, how you just delineated that for us? Um, yeah, you say. The, the framing question really is who controls the space? Yeah. Who's controlling the space yeah. who, for real? Who makes the rules? Yeah, who makes the rules? Who has right. the power to change the rules? And so the power to change the rules is an interesting thing. You know, where are we in this moment? Um, what I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll say a phrase. It might jolt some people, and then I'll unpack the phrase. The phrase is, in the United States, where we are, and people could argue for this um, in other countries and perhaps globally, but we are in a moment of recalibrating white supremacy um, in, in reaction to having had a black president, in rea- president, in reaction to globalization um, and, and demographic shifts, and in reaction to technology, which is freaking a lot of people out. So um, what white supremacy is is a totally – essential understanding if we're going to think about racism. White supremacy often is mistaken as KKK and neo-Nazis. Kind of the term got hijacked is the way I think about it. But what white supremacy is, is it's an ideology that came to the United States with European colonial settlers. And it's the idea, it was born in the Enlightenment, that all living things are not equal. And at the top of the living things pile are this particular animal called human being. And at the top of the human being pile is one very special kind of a human, and that is an elite, white, male, Protestant, Anglo, able, presenting hetero. Probably didn't have all that language back then, but that's the gist of it. And so if that's the group, if there's a deep belief that that's the group that is actually um, the, the, the most valuable, the most fit to lead, the smartest, the hardest working, then that's who... I mean, that's who founded the country, and that's who continues to uh, to be at the top of all of our hierarchical structures. So if you think about that one tiny kind of a human being I just described, including the elite, so not all white people fit into this, um, think of the number of people who are marginalized by that design. And in fact, James Madison, one of the fathers of the, really the primary founder of the Constitution, is on record in the months leading up to the Constitution's um, birth, he said, you know, the point of this government is going to be to pro- protect the minority of the opulent from the majority. Mm-hmm. 
could that be more different than a level playing field? And, you know, sometimes people say, well, they were just doing the best they knew. It really doesn't matter to me how much was intention and how much was, for, you know, evil intent or just a kind of where people were in terms of what they believed at the time. What I most care about is the impact. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and you say that in the book. You, you, yeah. you framework that. Excuse me. Um, you, what really struck me also, um, and it was actually new to me, I'll admit it, um, as a white woman, reading how important um, intention versus impact is to uh, these conversations. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm hearing a lot of that in what you're sharing right now. I mean, and there's a gap there. There's a big gap. Uh, there's a big gap. <laughs> yeah. So we've been set up as white people. We have been duped. I mean, everyone's been duped because it's not like every person of color knows this and every white person doesn't. Um, we've all grown up in the same schools and with the t- same TV shows. Uh, and imagine, though, while I've been, you know, swallowing ideas of racial superiority, black and brown people, kids, young children are swall. And I, I became a classroom teacher. I, I left that out of my narrative, but not in the book, but in this phone conversation. Um, I watched black and brown children internalize ideas of their own racial inferiority. You know, believe that they were not as smart. Believe that the reason their white peers were doing better was because they were smarter, not because of the design of the education system. Uh, Believe they were getting in trouble more because somehow they actually had less self-control and their white peers had more self-control, when in fact it has so much to do with all these other factors that all trace back to the design of, of our country and the institutions within it. And, you know, this, what's interesting, I'm hearing myself speak, and I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm talking like an ap- academic, and I think it's important to say I, I was really careful in the book to write a memoir because I'm not sure I would have been able to tune in um, if someone was trying to deliver this information in an academic way. I, I'm, a, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of stories, and... Mm. Um, and I think stories convey a lot of this in ways that maybe some of the language I'm using now might not. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, just a quick uh, note that if you're just joining us, we are in a powerful conversation with author Debbie Irving, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Her website is Debbie, D-E-B-B-Y, Irving, Dot com for more information about this powerful book um, came out uh, initial publication was in 2014 I believe um, has close to 500 fantastic reviews on Amazon and um, is a very honest and vulnerable conversation and as Debbie just said um, a memoir of her own experience and so Debbie thanks so much for being with us uh, so far this has been uh, a wonderful conversation. I just want to remind people, too, that we're going to be getting you involved. Um, you can ask questions live in about uh, 18 minutes from now. We'll be opening up for your questions and for you to get involved in this conversation. Um, so if, if we could just uh, jump back to um, a little bit more about your specific experience um, of that moment when you knew you needed to write this book, which, as again, you described as a memoir with stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, 
I was 48 years old. I had been uh, had migrated from the nonprofit arts world over to the public school system. I was a second grade teacher, kindergarten for a second grade teacher. I was in second grade that year, and I decided to go back to school to get my, uh, you know, my own children were a little older. I decided to go back to school and get my master's in special education. And I signed up for Wheelock College, an excellent teaching college here in Boston. And there's a required first course called Racial and Cultural Identities. And I am so excited because I think I'm finally going to get to learn about those black and brown children and their families so I can reach them better. And on the first day of class, I learned that everybody in the room, there are only 14 of us, um, are going to be doing a deep dive into our own racial and cultural identity. And I look around the room. It's a racially mixed room. And I think, what am I going to do? I didn't even know. This is how far back I started. I didn't even know I had a racial and cultural identity. I mean, I knew I was white, but I didn't know all that went with that. And so, I mean, I started from that point, and we were introduced to history I'd never learned. Um, One of the biggest learnings for me was the idea of the way housing and lending had conspired together um, in the making of the New Deal to create neighborhoods that were redlined, that was where black folks lived, green lines, that was where white folks lived, that were blue and yellow line spaces, and that was sort of the name of time. I won't get into that. But, you know, that GI Bill, my father went to Harvard Law School for free. My mother and father bought their first home in Winchester for $17,000. On that GI Bill after World War II, my dad had been in the Navy. And I thought, I would have thought that was open to everybody. It was a white-only bill. It didn't say anywhere in there it was a white-only bill. And there were some uh, black and brown GIs who were able to access it, but by and large, they weren't. And when I realized that, you know, I realized Winchester wasn't white because harder-working, better, smarter people were able to make money and afford to live there. It was intentionally made white. And when you were able to move into it because you were white, then, then you got to build wealth. Um, through job opportunities, excellent education, housing that was appreciating. So that's an example of systemic racism. And, you know, when I learned that, everything changed. I started to think back to those neighborhoods that I'd walked into with broken schools and disproportionately, you know, filled with black and brown families. And I, and I realized, well, those were the red-lined neighborhoods. Those were the neighborhoods that were systematically cut out of wealth sharing. Um, after the New Deal, and then and then add to that the GI Bill, it just changed everything. And I also realized my my advantage was at the expense of other people, because you know people who were left out of government handouts, everything you know from land grants, which my family had got, Social Security, which my family had collected, um, uh, the GI Bill, which my family had benefited from. When I realized that people who'd been left out of that had gotten the short end of the stick, uh, you know, I realized you can't have a short end of the stick without a long end of the stick. I'd been on the long end of the stick. My advantage is at the expense of the people who I'd been walking around trying to help and fix through my after-school programs. No wonder there was an elephant in the room. No wonder I wasn't trusted and appreciated. It all started to make sense. And I felt, well... Wouldn't it have been nice to know what was going on 25 years ago when I got involved in this work because I could have challenged the system instead of trying to help and fix individuals hurt by it. Um, And 
So I started looking around and thinking, how did I miss this? Um, how did I not know this history? I was a history major, by the way, at Kenyon College. And I went looking and looking for a book that might have kind of onboarded me to the subject matter, and it did not exist. There was no 101. And so that's why I decided to write Waking Up White, because it was the book that if someone had handed me 25 years ago, I wouldn't have wasted 25 years of my life doing more harm than good. Mm. And I, lo- I love in the, thank you. I love in the book how on that note, you um, really unpack um, the sense of uh, simply. I mean, I think it would be described as implicit bias that we all have, whether we whether we know it or not. So, could you right. share just really briefly again, capsule for us how um, we're we're racist without even knowing it and what that means. Yeah, now the first time I heard that, I I got angry and scared, I think, all at once. Um, One way to think about it is we are in a capitalist society. We're all capitalists, consumerists. You know, when I think about something, the first thing I think about is how to get the money for it, how much will it cost. Um, I love catalogs and going through them. Um, So I'm very tuned into the idea of exchanging goods for money, and I have a sense of value uh, for different things, because from the earliest age, I've been conditioned to you know, toys, costs. So I'm a consumerist. I'm a capitalist, because that's the way I was raised. Well, I'm also um, a racist, because whether or not I know it, I was raised around racial imagery and racial um, language and also white culture, which is a thing, without knowing any of that. And so an example of this is think about who's on your dollar bill. It's it's that little tiny person at the top that I described before. And so so it, unless you have somebody helping you unpack why there are only white men, out of all the kinds of people living in our country, why there's only one kind of person on the dollar bill, you might do what I did and think, well, those are just the people who founded our country. Or that's because... You know, that kind of person is smarter, harder, working to fit to lead. Those are our leaders. That's what a leader looks like. So that's an idea of how racial imagery, racial hierarchy can get into our um, deep-seated beliefs without us even – because this stuff happens. This exposure begins when we're really young, before we have the ability to discern. Uh, Debbie, what do, you, uh, what do you believe the key misconceptions are? that white people hold about race? Well, I think I think one of the key ones is that people think it's biological. That people think that the entire biodiversity of humanity breaks down into a handful of neat little racial groups and don't understand the level of intention that has gone into creating racial groups uh, in the United States specifically for the purpose of um, of controlling access to rights and resources and representation and even respect. So the word white um, is a word that came into being in the United States uh, back when Maryland and Virginia uh, were forming. And there had been Bacon's Rebellion with this big historic moment where the plantation class had a big uprising 
by the masses because uh, in its original uh, uh, culture, plantations had free blacks, Portuguese people, white uh, Europeans, people they weren't called white yet, Europeans who were indentured servants, some indigenous people, you know, all working, playing, sleeping, cooking, eating with each other on these plantations, serving the plantation class. They all rose up a couple times. Bacon's Rebellion is one of the big ones. And it was after that that we started to see um, bundles of laws get created that helped to figure out how to divide the masses. And it was in that process that the term white uh, was first used to describe a group of people. And at first that was really British, mostly British people. And over time, um, you know, Irish and Italians and Jews and other people got to get into that white category. But it's all in terms of who does and doesn't get into the white category and therefore all the privileges that come with being white, um, that was a highly controlled system by the United States government. Um, and, you know, to give a sense of what privileges you get when you're white, well, for a very long time, um, you had to be white to become a U.S. citizen. Wow. So as we as we're moving towards um Q&A period, I, there's still so much to to share with you and I wonder if you could share a bit about uh I know that you have have been on quite a journey obviously um that has changed, changed um in the way you interact, in the way you perceive um and you know, I think you in the book you describe yourself as an ally um or becoming an ally um, okay. with persons of color. And I'm wondering, what are you hearing people of color needing most? Um, what did, and perhaps you could share a bit about what you've heard before, what you're hearing now. What do you think is most poignant and relevant? And certainly for, for people of color with us today, we want to hear your voice in the Q&A period on, on this subject, um, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I think that with the election of Donald Trump um, and, you know, many white women, I think this is one of the big shockers voted. So I think there's a real sense of white white women. Why aren't you working with other white women? There's a the pain and pressure on people of color in the United States right now is fairly extreme because the emboldened uh, don't hold back at all. And. It's, it's just a very intense time. And so I, with that comes a heightened demand for white people to, uh, a lot of times, have white people do your work. Well, I wouldn't have known what do your work means. Do your work means waking up. It means wake up to understand how this whole thing works and what your role is in it. And be prepared to stand up and um, speak up for me. Have my back. And, you know, don't you go policing me, you know, barbecue Becky and all these things. We see so much policing of just everyday white people policing black and brown people. And that, you know, the, the big heightened ones go viral. But there's everyday policing by white people of black and brown people in office spaces um, and schools and, you know, everywhere. So, so daily existence is uh, exhausting right now for people of color and the, the I think the demand, the ask, is that we white people uh, meet this moment by kicking our own selves in the butt a bit and figuring out how, how all mm -hmm. this works. 
um, I hear the term, you know, just I don't need your help. I just need you to get your foot off my neck. Um, I don't need your help. I just need, you know, you to stand up and be an ally. So, and yet, that's not a simple um, thing to do. It's a real practice. Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. has been one of my great mentors. He's a black man who founded the White Privilege Conference. Almost sounds like a conference you shouldn't go to, right? Um, but it, it is a conference for some of the country's um, greatest activists. And he was a re- really is still a very uh, wonderful mentor with me. And, and at some point, he and I decided that we needed some kind of a, like a quick vehicle for people to help to develop their practice. And we created something called the racial, um, the 21-day racial equity challenge. It's on my website and on his. And I encourage people to check that out. That what we what we offer is every day for 21 days, which is apparently how long it takes to build a new habit. Do one of our things on the website. Maybe it's read an article. Maybe it's watch a short YouTube video. Maybe it's take our list of what to notice when you go out in the world. Maybe it's to find a new organization you can connect to in your area. Uh, all of the information is populated on the plan. So, so you don't have to do anything but go on to this one page and pick and choose day by day. For tw- at the end of 21 days, you won't believe how differently you see the world and how much more equipped you feel. Um, we hear this again and again, how much more equipped people who do the plan feel to kind of take the next step. Wonderful. Thank you for that reference. And again, that's at DebbieIrving.com. And did you want to mention, Debbie, his website as well? Yeah, his website is, yeah, let me just, um, EddieMoreJr.com. So it's Eddie, E-D-D-I-E, Moore, M-O-O-R-E, Junior, J-R. So that's all one word, EddieMoreJr.com. He is a phenomenal person. He would be really interesting for you to have on this show. Mm. Thank you. And you I don't know, know if you um, call it a show, uh, but it's a community forum, global community mm-hmm. forum. And on that note, um, start getting ready to press star two on your keypad. Um, we would love to hear your voice added to this conversation today. Um, we'll start opening up mics um, per a queue um, in just a few minutes. So if you have a question, please, by all means, don't be shy. We also warmly welcome comments and especially perspectives of those of you um, of persons of color background. So I, um, I, want, I wanted to, though, go back to a question around um, just I think it's threading here around this aspect of living in multiple realities. We're, you know, we're in these communities together, um, although, you know, arguably separated and privileged out um, and oppressed, but yet for people who are willing to attempt to wake up to the, the, the real fact that there are multiple realities, what are the first steps? I mean, this 20, 21 day challenge is, is fantastic. Um, but, but how do we know that we're actually bringing ourselves out of this shell that we might be living in to understand what it might really be like for a person of color? And furthermore, um, not offending them um, or stepping on their toes. I mean, I've, I know some persons of color who 
have no problem telling me about their experiences and then others who don't want to educate me, you know? So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I think that you will know that you're making progress when the whole world starts to look differently to you. And you hear, um, you know, of course you can hear it every day now, you start to notice news um, and you're able very quickly to analyze what's happening. It's like, no, that isn't a person being a, a complainer. That's someone trying to give you some feedback and you, you, don't, you can't hear it because you think the person is angry for no reason. So, for instance, sometimes people say, if we would just stop talking about it, you know, I'll hear somebody um, say something incredibly, you know, brilliant on the news who's describing a very complicated problem. And the unawakened white person on the other end would say, well, if I think if we just stopped talking about it all, you know, it would go away. I think talking about it is keeping the problem alive. When you start to, when you start to understand what the person who's conveying the very complicated um, perspective that describes white supremacy, then you start to realize that you're making progress. So how do we do it without further exhausting and further traumatizing and further burdening people of color? I think that's, um, that's where doing our own work comes into play. So that's reading, that's watching videos, that's starting to understand history, that's maybe joining groups. Uh, so it, it, it's so true. Not every person of color wants to do this work with white people or have this conversation with white people. And so finding spaces where people are voluntarily coming, um, a, a, a racially mixed group is, is voluntarily coming together is the way to go, as opposed to just striking up or putting pressure to have this conversation on somebody uh, who, who's in your office. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, these spaces might be at a YWCA. They might be at some the surge is showing up for racial justice, S-U-R-J. There are surge chapters all over the country. There are groups of white people who are doing our work and figuring out how to support black and brown people in our community, um, in our communities who want support. And that might mean uh, financial support. That might mean um, writing letters to uh, somebody in government. That might be uh, bringing food to somebody whose whose child was murdered. You just it, it's the whole range, and it differs community to community. So it is important. You know, we can't. I could never have done this waking up. Nobody can if you just sit in your you know the comfort of your own home studying, because you don't find out the limitations of uh, of your own whiteness until you start engaging and something goes wrong. And that is what a lot of white people are afraid of. They don't want to go through the discomfort of um, having their ignorance exposed, saying something that creates, you know, an upsetting moment. Now we've got conflict that has to be navigated. And, you know, what a privilege to have the choice to do this or not, because no person Mm -hmm. of color has a choice. They have to navigate it every day. Mm -hmm. And so a way to share the burden of this really messed up, oppressive system that we were all born into if we're born in the U.S. or um, in Canada, if you're born into Canada. Um, it's a way to share the burden uh, of, of what we've all inherited. Uh, so, mm. and, and I would also say I think it's very important to understand white cultural norms. So white culture, and this doesn't mean every single household, but the dominant white culture, 
the one that we have to obey the rules of when we go into workplaces or the bank or the hospital. Uh, you know, uh, don't rock the boat. Um, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Or these are signs that we're in a culture that's conflict-averse. Um, we're supposed to be polite. We're supposed to be compliant. Um, and, and one of the effects of that on me was I grew up um, unable to navigate conflict. I was terrified of conflict because if I avoided it, I had no skills to navigate it. And, you know, I would just stress to everybody listening that it's just skills. We can learn. We can absolutely learn um, how to navigate conflict. And, and, you know, another part of white culture is that we're all rugged individuals. Well, if we're all individuals, there isn't a lot of emphasis on the um, need to be knit together as communities and knit together as families and knit together in our relationships. And in order to be a cohesive, vibrant, thriving community, we must know how to navigate conflict. We aren't individuals. We are, you know, as Mm -hmm. soon as I start to prioritize, so in my marriage, you know, the priority is the relationship. It's not me. Um, and so I always have to think about my husband and me and this thing that's, that's us that we've created. Uh, the same in cross-racial friendships and, and mm-hmm. racially mixed communities um, is that we mm-hmm. always have to think about the well-being of the larger group. And yet... Uh, I just thought, I love raised, that point so much. Yeah. The web of mutuality that um, so, particularly white culture um, seems to have lost... Um, part of its soul over, if not all of it, um, and how to bring that back. And I think African-American communities and other cultures have so much to teach us in um, the mutuality that is apparent in the way that they go about their lives. Um, Right. And I I really appreciate you pointing that out. Uh, It's a big one. It's a paradigm shift, and it also includes um, un- unraveling from the whitewashing um, and brainwashing that we've experienced in American culture. And, uh, and it totally ties into restorative justice. Because, yeah, I was just uh, going to say that. Our corners, yeah, so I'm not sure how you're thinking about it, but I'm thinking about um, a cornerstone of white culture is a punitive approach to harm, yeah. to, to a punitive approach, which, you know, you can punish an individual, but if we're thinking about community well-being, or I love that language you just used, um, if it's about the relationship in the community, then we have to restore the relationship. Right. And Absolutely. that's what, so restorative justice disrupts whiteness. That's one of the it ways I think about it. It values relationships. It values the mm-hmm. fact that we are in, as Dr. King said so poignantly a web of mutuality well what is that web of mutuality it's the glue is relationship without Mm. relationship we we have no you know we're we're not solid (laughs) so Uh um, valuing our relationships and our accountability to those um, leads this what we call the restorative justice movement I know that there's questions coming in, Debbie, and I I know we're close to the top of the hour. Would you be willing to stay for a few minutes after the hour just to take questions um, since we got started a few minutes after? Would that work for you? Sure. Yep. Okay. Fantastic. So, um, again, a reminder to everyone, if you have a, a web question that you'd like to ask um, that we can um, ask on your behalf, please submit that on the Q&A tab on the webcast page.
If you would like to be um, live with us right now, please um, don't be shy. Come on into the room. Um, star 2 on your keypad in order to do that. Again, that's star 2 on your keypad. That's uh, to raise your hand like we did earlier. Um, and we'll, we'll go into some questions now. Uh, the first one I, I love because it, it points to um, the anecdote that I was hoping to get to with you that you share in your book around the conference experience. Um, and so you get, for those of you that obviously haven't, many of us who haven't read the book, um, she, there's a great piece in this book, um, among many others, that shares a specific experience, um, Debbie, where you go to that conference on race and have an experience um, that really helped you to gain better understanding. So the question um, that this points to is, um, KN, thank you for your question. Um, what is your response to people of color who feel you have a lot of nerve talking about their plight and making money from writing and talking about their struggles? Thank you for that question. Well, I don't talk much about their plight. I talk about mine. Uh, that's, the, that's why it's called Waking Up White. Um, I, I talk about the, the socialization of being white. Of course, you can't talk about any aspect of race without um, bringing in elements of the whole picture. And so I do, of course, end up talking about people of color's experiences. But the focus is on the white experience and the uh, phenomenon of white people collecting evidence in support of the myths that they're taught that the playing field is level, that white people are superior, whether they know they've bought into this or not, and how that serves to hold the whole thing in place. Um, and so that's what I talk about. And the money thing is, is, is so much more complicated than most people understand. It's not an easy um, should or shouldn't make money. I, 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 when I first started going, I had just enough money left to um, work for about a year without getting paid when the book came out. And, um, it, and I started getting pulled aside by people who said, Debbie, you cannot do that. You're totally undercutting us. People are going for you because you're free. Um, so it's there, you know, they're about, it's like a Rubik's Cube when you think about navigating the space, the capitalistic commodified space, doing privilege work. And you, so the best I can do is, um, you know, surround myself with a really great team of advisors who are people of color and help me navigate the space in a way that's responsible, full of integrity. And then um, I am not money-driven, so uh, profits, and that's probably from a real position of privilege to say that, uh, but I burned through all my money uh, taking years off of work to write this book and do the research. So I do need to make enough to live on. And, uh, but I make, I keep just enough to live on and all the rest is, uh, Profits are given, are shared and reinvested. So I always say I am I am mission driven, not money driven. I am on a serious mission for the rest of my life. Thank you again for that question. And and Debbie, um, if I might, I just want to read, uh, and we'll take another live question in a moment. Um, pointing to the that anecdote that you shared um, about the conference. It's on page 162 in the book, and it's about intent um, versus impact. And did you want to just like quickly share um, 
to set people up for what you experienced there um, in this conference? Yeah. So, uh, so um, a friend of mine uh, of color, because it's not like I didn't have friends of color uh, during all of this. Um, I did. But one friend of color said, Debbie, you have to experience what it's like to be one of the only white people. You have to experience what it's like to be a racial other. So I went to this conference that was uh, like 95% people of color and just a few white people. And I had just, I, I didn't even know what the term white privilege was like four months before I went to this conference. So I was brand new out of the gate. And I was immensely uncomfortable. And yet uh, at my very first workshop I went to, there was a video shown. It was a rough cut of a video that was being made to um, help explain what the issue is to uh, higher-ups in the organization that the group who made the video was from. And they, um, at the end of it, they said, so are there comments? And here I am. One white person in the room of about, you know, 250, maybe there were four, three or four white people, but in a room of 250 people. And um, I was the first person to raise my hand and stand up and give advice on the video. It was so completely inappropriate. And um, I just didn't understand at all yet what that space, first of all, what the space is like for, uh, this was the People of Color conference. This is their time to not have to deal with us fragile, um, controlling white people. And I just did everything wrong in the book and got schooled big time by uh, one, two, three women stood up and put me in my place, right, rightly. And um, it was so shocking to me. I, I really had no idea how much rage there is towards white people um, who don't know what we're dealing with, don't know how to navigate racially mixed spaces, or in this case, a predominantly a person, a, a space designed for people of color. So if I were going to go to that um, at all, I really should have just been silent and been an observer. I had no place talking at all, let alone giving advice. So that was a moment um, I think you said that I found very helpful. I will tell you that I was devastated. Um, that was so, so, um, that tore me open in, in ways that made me just feel so immature and so naive mm -hmm. and made me wonder if I was, would ever be able to grow enough uh, mm -hmm. to be responsible, to be responsible enough to even be, uh, a friend or a colleague of a person of color. It, it was one of those moments where, you know, sometimes they say the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Mm. It was one of those one of those moments. Um, and I still have those moments. But the learning curve is, it hasn't slowed down. Um, it, it's, there's not an end point. So, but that was the biggest moment uh, the, outside of the class that I had taken that I got a sense mm -hmm. of just, just how um, toxic as a white person I could be. And I, I want to pardon myself for um, putting, uh, you know, putting the word helpful there. I think I was speaking for myself, so excuse me there. Um, in reading, oh no, it was paragraph, ultimately. It's, it's right. helpful to ultimately read. Ultimately, it was. Yeah, because and, it, and it ultimately, it out really well. Yeah, ultimately, it it, um, it taught me a lot. I mean, I think that's 
the truth about this is that if you don't, it is a no pain, no gain situation. No gain. Did I say that right? No, that, yeah, that, yeah. and and again, I'm not going to read this paragraph. I'm going to just um, tease you into buying the book. Uh, read page 161 and 162 for that anecdote. And of course, there's a lot more of those in this um, entire book. So, um, wanting to go back though to the line and have another question. Um, and thanks again too for staying a few minutes after Debbie. Appreciate that. Um, I want to welcome Geraldine. Your line is open, and thank you for being here. Sure. Did you have a question? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Um, it looks like you had your hand raised. Sorry about that. Okay, so um, for those of you that are interested in, in asking a live question, star two on your keypad, and um, again, also Q&A tab on the webcast. Um, and it looks like uh, with just a few minutes left here, we can also talk about the, the actionable items again. I know you mentioned the, um, the 21 day um, challenge, which uh, mm -hmm. it, could you repeat the website of your colleague? Um, one person was asking about that. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's eddiemorejr.com. Eddie is okay. E-D-D-I-E, Moore has two O's, and Junior is just J-R, eddiemorejr.com. And again, Great. it's the White Privilege Conference that he founded. Great. Um, so, Debbie, what are three things um, besides that 21-day challenge that white people can do to be conscious of the things we do not see? Um, you open the book with that James Baldwin quote. I think it's a powerful one for us to be aware that, um, that there's a gap between um, lived experience um, and being conscious of that lived experience. Um, so what are, what are some things that you can suggest to us as we close out today? Well, we have a lot of remedial education to do, so really um, understanding our history. So my, my website is just packed full of resources to do our learning. Um, it's also important to uh, start noticing, start noticing uh, the own difficult feelings we have, our own stereotypes and biases. I still struggle with the stereotypes and biases I have. Often we think of stereotypes as negative. Just, you know, black men are criminal, uh, Latinx people are lazy, whatever you've been exposed to. Um, you start noticing those. Don't be afraid of them. Don't judge them. Only when we notice them and bring them to the light of day can they lose their hold on us. And don't forget about positive stereotypes. So every time I give a pass to or feel more favorably towards a white person, um, or assume a white doctor is comp a white male doctor is competent. You know there are positive stereotypes that, that mislead us just as much as negative stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Noticing those, noticing notice what you're seeing on ads. Um, notice what magazines are for sale. Notice start just start noticing the racial identity of everyone. You know white is so normalized in this country that often white people don't see it. People of color do, but often we white people don't. Um, and the third thing I would say is engage. We have to engage. That means if someone 
says a nasty someone in your white space says nasty racial joke. Speaking up, um, mm-hmm. just saying I'm not comfortable with that. You don't have to shame them. Oh, so you always speak from the eye. I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, is a that's important. And getting it across racial spaces and engaging, um, doing book reads. So you're starting because one of the things that holds all this in place is white silence. Um, white people mm-hmm. are taught not to talk about race. And so it's really important to start talking about it. And an easy on-ramp to that is getting and start reading books. Um, and I, I always do think Waking Up White is the first one, but then there are thousands and there are more coming out every day. There are so many powerful books and videos. Mm-hmm. You could have a, a gathering and watch a short video and have a conversation about it. Just start talking. And then comes the time to move to action. But a white person trying to be, do action before really developing a racial consciousness is actually a very dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that, that's Thank my you for whole pointing that out. Yeah, that's the white saviorism chapter in my book. Yeah. Um, Debbie, we have another question coming in that relates to what you're sharing right now. Um, appreciation for this. Do you have any hints, they ask, about how to talk to your white friends who are resistant to recognizing their privilege? Yes. Um, I think trying to convince someone they have privilege when they don't is is a a futile effort. So uh, asking questions is, you know, how do you understand this? How do you understand that? Well, what do you, how do you explain this? How do you explain that? And in an authentic inquiry way, you know, because people will sniff if you have an agenda. I'll also say, I just posted on my Facebook page yesterday something I found from the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm going to look it up. It was, it's so fantastic, and it's just about what you're talking about. They have example after example about how to talk to, um, and it's on my personal page, so I think I would have to put it on my Debbie Irving page to share it with you all. But um, I'm sorry this is taking so long. Come on, Facebook, help me out here. Um Okay, that must be from Brian uh, Stevenson, and um, I think he's still with the no, Southern Poverty Law. Oh yeah, um, so I have it. It's uh, called "Speak Up: Colon Responding to Everyday Bigotry." And mm-hmm. when you, um, so if you Google that, you'll find it. But uh, what I thought was fantastic when I first looked at it is it has um, had about twenty different scenarios responding to everyday bigger how do I how do what can I do among family? What can I do about sibling slurs? What can I do about joking in laws? What can I do about impressionable children? What do I do about stubborn relatives? What do I what can I do among friends and neighbors? So I think it's a it's an incredible resource that I just discovered even though it's back from two thousand fifteen. So I would point people to that. Uh, and I'll also say because there's so much conditioning in white spaces to not talk about this, they're talking about race is rude, we've been, uh, that and avoiding conflict is a, is a terrible combination. And so I'm actually part of a group, and many activists I know are part of a group where we actually do role playing. So when we find something that's difficult, we say, oh, and we get together once a month and say, okay, this happened and I, I didn't know how to respond or I don't like how I responded, we actually practice it. And you can always go back to somebody. I think sometimes we think we need to do it in one fell swoop. It's totally fine to say, you mm-hmm. know, last week I, I was kind mm-hmm. of at a loss for words or I don't like the way I responded to that. Would you give me another chance? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to lose our relationship. And this is really 
this is really bothering me. It, it may take 20 conversations and you may never get there. All of that right. is possible, but the point, the point is to get, stay engaged and develop new skills. Well, it has been um, a very fast, a little bit over 60 minutes now with you today, and it's been such a wonderful honor to have you and just wanting to acknowledge and thank you again for being willing to write this book. And for those of you who are interested in more information, obviously, about the book and to buy it, you can buy it at a whole array of booksellers and find out more about it at debbieirving.com. That's D-E-B-B-Y-I-R-V-I-N-G.com. And, you know, Debbie, closing, quick closing thought before we um, sign off for this session today. I believe I'm inviting there's a tipping you. point. Of, you're inviting me. Yeah, I believe there's a tipping yeah. point where when enough white people start waking up, everything will change. But we white people are the ones who are holding this whole thing in place. It's not like everyone doesn't have some work to do, but but we are holding the lid on the whole thing as a population. And um, I am so excited for a moment that I hope for where there are enough white people who start to understand the history and understand the way we white people have been taught to hold it in place and be oppressors, even those of us who are good, big-hearted, well-intentioned people. And when that critical mass happens, I think it's not just that uh, racial oppression lessens or ends, but that we white people are liberated too, because whiteness crushes all of our spirits. It's, um, it's mm. a really toxic culture. It asks us to disconnect our hearts from our minds and from and, and not develop relationship skills and to think that um, that we're rugged individuals. It's, it's a soulless and, mm-hmm. and harmful culture and makes us think that there's never enough time and never enough money. All of that's part of the culture. It's not real. Powerful. Thank you so much. And... Um... For those of you that are are interested, um, this will be put up on the Restorative Justice on the Rise website as an iTunes podcast, transferable across devices. Please share it wide and far if um, you've been inspired today. Um, You can find all of those podcasts and interviews as well as resources and articles at restorativejusticeontherise, all one word, .org. I'd also like to quickly point your attention to an a three-part class series just on the note of talking openly about race that we are offering right now with Eric Butler, from uh, formerly from Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, um, based in the Bay Area. And Eric is a powerful facilitator um, leading this three-part session with a group of people. It's not too late to join in. If you're interested in that, you can find out um, how what, what the topics are for each session um, it's three consecutive Fridays. Tonight's the next class, and um, that's going to be happening, um, or more information can be found um, at the Facebook page, and that's Restorative Justice on the Rise on Facebook. So, again, Debbie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for those who submitted questions. We'll look forward to hopefully seeing you next week as we talk further about race, implicit bias, and restorative practice, 
with scholar and professor David Hooker. So thank you again. I'm Molly Rowan-Leach. It's been my pleasure to host this conversation. Thank you.